we'll just make sure this is working and it is. So this is where I start getting excited. Because for a lot of you, probably this is the stuff you're really here for, right? Not all that other stuff. So we're going to talk about this guy. So if I just give you the lowdown how, we, how we're going to learn this material, this week is the head. We're going to talk about uh, the head itself, the bones, the structures of the, of the, of the, or the, bones of the, of the calvaria, or the head and the face. So we separate the two of them between head and face. And then uh, from there, uh, the following weeks, we start with the cervical spine first. Cover all the structures related to cervical spine, then we do thoracic spine, then we do lumbar spine, sacrum, and sacroiliac joint, and that should take us to about week seven, maybe half a week eight, and then we're done with anatomy, and then we move into physiology for the whole rest of the course. So that's why we're kind of front-loading, because what's gonna, what's really cool, what's gonna happen now is, so you're gonna learn this today, it's this week or next week, I think it might be next week when you go into practice consolidation, you're actually gonna start palpating all these structures that you just did in class. So you're gonna get lots of reinforcement from that. So, this one's all blowed up. I like it because it shows you that every one of these bones comes together and forms this solid mass that we know of as the face and skull. And that um, when we look at the fact that there's all these different bones, the question becomes, you know, different bones? What do you mean different bones? The one thing we haven't taken yet is called centers of ossification. So every single bone in your body starts out in some kind of either fibrous or cartilaginous model. Right, so the, the body builds a model of, of uh, cartilage, if you want to call it that. Some of, some of it's cartilage, as I said, some of it's fibrous. And then through development, those models become ossified. They become bone-like. So that by the time baby is born, there's a much more mature skeleton inside the infant at birth, but relatively speaking, the bones are still pretty cartilaginous, right? They can, there's some bend to them. As we're going to learn, and most of us know, even the, even the skull isn't fully developed at birth because the head needs to come out the birth canal. That's what helps it fit. I can't remember if I talked to you guys about that in the other class. So it helps it, it fit. So when we blow the skull up like this, I want you to imagine that in a developmental point of view, each of these pieces of bone starts off as a cartilaginous model that eventually gets <coughs> ossified or calcified within the context of, it all, although it all fits like a puzzle and fits together, each of these actually was its own model that had an ossification center that kind of spread out. You guys ever go to like, um, see, I saw the CNE, you see them at the mall sometimes at Christmas time, you know, they sell these little packages and they go, watch, and they go, click, and the whole thing crystallizes and becomes warm. Think of that point of click and how it all, it all crystallizes outwardly from that. It's exactly what happens when bone develops. You have this center of ossification, so the cartilage model is built, and then slowly over the days, hours, and months inside mom, it slowly becomes more and more calcified, ossified as it grows. And then of course as adults, it becomes this, what we think of as the mature skeleton. But ultimately, each one of these bones developed on its own, even though they all come together to form the one, okay? So it has a number of names. It is known as the skull. It is known as the calvaria. It is also known as the brain case and the cranial vault. It has three functions. It houses the special organs of sense, which are what? Sight, Sight smell, smell, taste, hearing, hearing right? So uh, all those organs of special senses, all of those nerves that, uh, that are connected to those senses originate inside the cranium. So they are called cranial nerves because they do originate from the cranium and 
in some cases also innervate uh, muscle of the face as well. Secondly, it encloses the brain, so that's, uh, that's what's in this guy here. So it has the brain in there. And then it surrounds the openings for the digestive respiratory tracts. So that would be obviously be this guy, right? So we, we exchange air through the oral cavity and we eat through the oral cavity. As I said, it's divided into two sections. We have the skull, or the cranial bones, which is this one, and then the, face, the facial bones, which represent the anterior component. And that's the way I sort of divide the way we're going to talk today. Cranial bones, there are eight, and only two of them are paired. There is a single frontal bone, forehead. There are two parietal bones, the oh my god bones. Right, they fit like that. Two temporal bones, think of right around where the ear is. Two temporal bones. Occipital bone, one in the back. One big sphenoid that goes to both sides and actually looks like a big beautiful butterfly. And then the ethmoid bone, which lies back towards the, behind the nose, what you think of as the nose. There are 14 facial bones. There is two nasal bones. There are two maxillae. So this actually is two separate bones. Or if you take your tongue right now, and roll right up the middle of the roof of your mouth. Do you feel a little ridge that's running on the sides of the line? So believe it or not, you developed like this. The bones developed like this and so did the soft tissue. And you're actually almost feeling that seam of development when you have that little line right down the middle. Zygomatic bones, if there are two. Mandible is your lower bone, one. Palatine, kind of the hard palate. Inferior nasal concave, two, because there's one on either side. One vomer and two lacrimal bones. They'll make up all the, what you think of this as the face. So we see here um, all the various ones here. They're colored. And uh, I don't, I mean, we'll go through all this. It's just a picture to get you started on it because we're going to go through all those bones. So at the end of this class, you're going to know all these bones, where they are, and what they do. Fair enough? I can do a quiz at the end. Okay. Sutures, we've talked about a bit, yes? Yeah. When we talked about joints, we talked about fibrous joints. We said that sutures were a fibrous joint, and what kind of movement did they do? It's a collar. It's a synarthroidal joint, correct. But uh, not that much movement at all. What I like is that they look much better in the real model. So I'll pass this one around first. This one's quite nice. It's loose because, again, like I said the other day, this individual is long since gone and all the soft tissue that made up the fibrous tissue of the, between the, between the uh, indentations and interdigenations uh, is gone, so, so it has to be loose. So, sutures are only in the skull. They're held together by strong uh, connective tissue and a zipper-like configuration of the bones. So you can just start passing it around that way. If you look at your malobals that you have, you do have them there, for sure. Uh, they are, um, what's the word I want? Stephen tapped. Awesome. And you can pass it that way. Go around that way. Because you can see it on that one as well. Okay. The union is tight. And as I say, some suggest they move. Others suggest they don't move at all. The newborn sutures are not yet closed and allow the head to, the head to fit through during birth. I didn't think I had a picture of it. So uh, there are these soft areas. And these soft areas we're going to learn are called fontanelles. Now, the true Latin definition of fontanelle means fountain. I'm not sure why they decided it was a fountain. I'm not sure if you squeeze it too hard, it squirts like a fountain. I, I don't know. 
don't know where they came up with that. What you'll find sometimes is I think anatomists were smoking crack back in the day when they were uh, cutting open bodies because they, they, they tend to say things have a certain shape or look or whatever, and you look at it in the real body and you go, I'm not getting it. I'm not getting it at all. Uh, the fontanelles are, are, so there are two fontanelles, one anterior and one posterior. Uh, both ossify after birth with the anterior one fully closed at approximately two years. Takes coat off of that front one. The back one closes up fairly quickly. So if you've got a nephew or a niece or a cousin or whatever and they're quite young, just pour them over and poke their head. And feel it. It's, it's quite cool. You're not going to hurt them as long as you don't. Just go down on that floor too. Um, but just get a feel of it because what, what that is, like I said, when I, you know, that picture at the beginning that had the blown up head and said that they were cartilage in this model that eventually became ossified, what you're actually touching in these fontanelles is, is the cartilage uh, that will eventually become hardened with crystalline um, uh, substances like calcium to eventually become hard. So it's kind of a, a neat opportunity if you've got young one that's young enough to just kind of gently push and get a sense of that that is connective tissue that eventually will become hard and foam. Um, where the fontanelles closed, in the anterior is called the bregma, and when the posterior ossifies, it's called the lambda. Okay, so uh, bregma and lambda, and then once they close, those sutures begin ossification at 20, and usually are fin completely finished at 60. Remember, I said the first time I showed you the skull cap, I said this this individual is probably relatively old because a lot of the a lot of the suture had been fused together. That's why. So you have that ongoing process from 20 to 60 as those as those sutures slowly close up, okay? So we see them here, we've got a few of them, we're gonna talk about them individually. One here, we've got a bunch of them here, so forth. So the first one is called the coronal suture. Well, what does that tell you now that you know what coronal is? What plane must it run across? Right, across the coronal plane. So it is this one on your model, right here, just posterior to the frontal bone. So maybe some of you want to take a little marker and whatever, doesn't matter to you. So this is called the coronal suture. It divides the parietal bones and the frontal bone. So the frontal bone is anterior, the two parietals lie posterior to that. And it runs from sphenoid bone to sphenoid bone laterally. So if you look at yours, I don't know, do you guys have the H marks the spot on yours? You see, yeah, kind of comes down here a little bit. So it kind of ends right there. You see it a bit better, I think, in these guys. Uh, not really. It's kind of fused up a bit. It has fused up a bit. Kind of difficult to see, but there's kind of a dark line here on this one that you can see. The next uh, running here, so we see across the front, there's the frontal bone, the two parietals. We see it in the drawing here. The sagittal suture tells you what plane is that running on? Sagittal. The sagittal line. So from the, the uh, coronal line anteriorly to the occipital line posteriorly, this, this is a suture that runs along the sagittal line and it divides the two parietal bones. Okay, divides the two parietal bones. So we see it here. This is the frontal bone with the coronal suture here. The, the sagittal suture runs here, dividing into a right and left parietal bone, running this way. Next is the lamboid, lamboid, su, lam, 
lambdoid suture that divides the occipital bone from the two parietal bones. So it's the one back here on the posterior aspect of the skull. And that's the one that you see back here. And uh, it is the one that in the one particular, I think in both actually, both uh, specimens that I passed around, it's the occipital bone that's quite, quite loose posteriorly, quite loose, right? So it comes up in behind here and forms the posterior aspect of the skull. The squamous suture is on each side of the lateral aspect of the skull, and it divides the temporal bone from the parietal bone. And um, I don't think it's very good on your model, I do believe. I don't remember it to be very good. You can kind of. Well, where you really see it is on the real model. So you can see them there. See the, um, you can almost see the separation of the space. Yeah. See it there? That forms the, this area. So you can actually get behind it. I should put my finger in it. I know. This one here. So I'll pass it around. You can see them, but they're, they're much more defined in these models than they are in your own. So it's this little piece right here. This little suture right along here. So the fact that I can put my finger behind this one tells me there was likely some soft tissue in there. I have time with that. And uh, it is, uh, I find a lot of times students usually use a marker or something to define it a bit better because it sort of shows up on here, but not much. It'll sort of be. Um, so that is called the squamous suture. We see it here along this line. So we, now in this diagram, we can, see, we can see the coronal suture dividing the frontal plate from the parietal lambdoidal suture separating the occipital bone from the parietals, and we see the squamous suture here that's separating between the temporal bone and the, and the parietal bone. We see it up here as well. All, a lot of these come and, and they, they sort of finish at an intersection that's relatively H-shaped. It's kind of important, it's a bit of a landmark for us, and it is called the pterium. And, uh, it's more of an important landmark for things like surgery and that kind of stuff, but it's sort of where we tend to go to when we think, you know, of temple area when we massage a headache or whatever. So what happens is, this is the articulation of the frontal, the parietal, the temporal, and the sphenoid. So you see it here. So there's your frontal, there's your parietal, your temporal, and the sphenoids here. They all come together and form an H shape and this is known as the pterium. It usually forms an H, and loca it's located in what is called the temporal fossa. By the way, uh, have you guys started listening to your muscle, the muscle slides that I did? So some of, some of these structures that I talked about in those slides will start really popping up here now in terms of where those muscle attachments are, okay? Any questions on that? So, ultimately then, in that first picture when I show this, this, this face and head completely blown up, that's sort of what happens. You get these individual um, developments of these pieces of bone, and they come together and fit like a jigsaw puzzle to form what you think of as the head, the skull, and the face. So let's do the cranial bones first. We are going to start at the frontal bone. And it's exactly that. It is the front bone at the front. Uh, so to think of it as the forehead, okay? 
Uh, it occupies the suborbital arches, uh, and uh, sorry, the suborbital margin of the arches, and that is where oh yeah, kind of have that bit of bone behind the eyebrows. Okay, that's what these are. So the supraorbital arches are the two parts of um, bone somewhat sticking out just above the eye. So, uh, and some people have very significant. Uh, prominent uh, bulges here, and some do not, but ultimately that's where it comes from. Now, in the real model, can I see where's the other real faces? If we look here, um, what I want to understand is it forms the roof of the orbit. So, this is where your eyeball would be, and the frontal bone comes over the top. Where's the cat? The dark, the dark skull cat. Uh, the dark one. Ah. So as I said, the, the frontal bone does form, she's stuck together better, but it forms the front part here. But I want you to understand it. So it's, it starts up here at the coronal suture and comes down over. It is part of the superorbital margins but then also forms the floor of the orbit, or the, sorry, the roof of the orbit in here. So think of it kind of coming around and in. All right, so you've got the, the roof of the orbit here. That is all frontal bone. Uh, articulates with the parietal bones of the coronal suture. It also articulates with the nasal bones at the frontal, uh, the frontal nasal suture. So here at the front, it, it articulates here. This would be the nasal area. This would be where the, think, think of, um, if you were to take a marker and draw a line across your superorbital ridges with a little bit down below, uh, you would sort of represent where that suture is for the, uh, for the frontal nasal suture, but then thinking of your fingers going back underneath your eyes, this would all be frontal bone, right? Sort of from here, down, and then in behind underneath. Uh, the frontal bone also articulates with the zygomatic bone laterally, the lacrimal bone, and the ethmoid, which are deep back when that, when that roof of it that forms the, the roof of the orbit, as it heads back, that's where it articulates with, uh, with the lacrimal and the ethmoid, way back behind the eyes, all right? And then the sphenoid is this very large bone. In fact, if you all take your heads off, the top off, you should see distinctly there actually is something that looks like a butterfly in there. That butterfly represents the sphenoid bone, and you see that it runs all the way across both sides. You'll see kind of a butterfly configuration. We'll get to that one shortly. So frontal bone here, you can see how it comes over. There's your superorbital ridges. Uh, this is um, the zygomatic bone here, articulates here, articulates here with the nasal bones, and the back here is where we find the lacrimal and the ethmoid bones. We find articulation here. Ultimately, what I want you to understand, and you can see it here a bit, the orange drives back in. So it actually isn't just the front, it actually does head back to form that roof of the orbit. We have parietal bones next, of which there is a pair. It is the largest surface area of the calvaria, and two curved lines are found on the lateral side. So we see them here and here, two lines and they're kind of important. They are known as the superior and the inferior temporal lines. There's one thing I want you to be very aware of. Bone is alive. 
Okay? You know, although it's hard and it kind of looks dead, it's not. If we put stress on it, it will overgrow to some degree. So if I put stress from a muscle, what's it going to do? It's going to create lines. So whenever you see a line like that, that's going to tell you that there's like a muscle attachment there. Okay? <coughs> the inferior temporal line is the attachment for the temporalis muscle. So if you've done again the slides, temporalis is the one that's on the lateral aspect, sits inside the temporal fossa, which is an indentation at the temporal area, and its attachment is along that inferior temporal line in its proximal attachment. Okay? So and it's relatively large if you think about it, right? It's uh, what I want to show you here in my model. Oh, look at that, it's magnetic. Fancy. Just kind of suck right in there. Is that red part? That represents the attachment for temporalis. Where it's all right here. So it fits in that, that fossa, and then there is a ridge here, although it doesn't show well in my model, there's a ridge here that would be the attachment for the inferior one for temporalis. The bridal bones articulate with each other, with each other at the sagittal suture, and the inverted V suture created by the occipital bone in the parietal bones is called the lambdoid suture as well. Okay? And uh, so where all three where the two parietal and the single occipital bone all meet on that suture is known as the lambda. So right there is the lambda. Where the, uh, where the sagittal and the lambdoidal suture meet, this is the lambda. The parietal bone also articulates with the temporal bones laterally here and the sphenoid bone, small little piece inside. How are we doing? So far so good? So we see it there. Covers a fair amount. The temporal bones, there are two. And believe it or not, these two guys actually form the base of the skull. They kind of come underneath and form right here at the base of the skull. Uh, there's a slender point, uh, point of process in the inferior and external aspect called the styloid process. And I have a feeling they have broken up. There it is right there. Okay, on this, please, if, I, if you pass it around, be very careful with it, it's very delicate. So this is, we said this was the temporal suture, yes? This, this the suture was between the temporal bone and the parietal bone, yes? Okay, so the temporal bone comes all the way underneath and forms the base of the skull. On here you'll see a very sharp point, yes? This I haven't got it, see there's like almost like a tooth here? That is known as a styloid process. Because when anatomists had a look at it, they said it looked like a styloid of a pen. Back in the day when you used to dip a pen in between right, right? They felt that it looked like the tip. Because what did they used to write with way back in the day? Feathers, Feathers right. Because they would put it down into a stylus tip to write with, and they felt that it looked like the tip of the, of the feather when they, were, when they were using the ink. So say, you know, if I do pass around, I'm trying to be very careful with this because it's the last one I've got. And it's one of the few. So there's actually a muscle that you would have learned. It's one of these superhyoids that attaches here. And it has, over time, right, pulled down because of the forces generated by the muscle attachment itself. You can see it here. It is known as the styloid process of the temporal bone. Uh, and laterally to the styloid process is found the mastoid process. That's this guy here. 
And now you guys haven't started palpating this yet, have you? Did you palpate the mastoid process? No. I know you had a few palpations you've done already, yes? Landmarking, yeah. but it wasn't the mastoid process? Okay. What's really cool about the mastoid process is you're not born with one. Correct. <coughs> so let's see who we have here. Your turn. Can you take your hoodie off? Have you got a shirt underneath? Yeah. Awesome. I wouldn't ask you to take it off if you didn't. That's why I asked. Just making you do it in a hurry, that's all. Yeah. Okay, come on. Okay, so as I said, you were a form of fun. I just need you to pull your hair back for me. Uh, back here. Okay. And we're going to turn a little bit towards class this way. All right? So we have um, the external auditory meatus, which is here, and the jaw lines kind of open and close your jaw just a bit. All right? And relax. Just posterior to the mandible and inferior posterior to the external auditory meatus, there is a large process here. This is called the mastoid process. What I would like you to do is I want you to turn to look at me. And you see a muscle sticking out right here? And relax. Do it again. Turn towards me. See it right here? Okay, that is called sternocleidomastoid. Okay? And um, it, it's a very significant muscle. Yeah, it hurts a lot. Yeah, it's good. Okay. Um, and when baby is born, Baby doesn't have one. When do you think this starts to develop? So like I said, bone is alive, and when you place stresses on bone, it reacts by growing. So when do you think a baby might start growing a mastoid process? When they hold their head up. Yeah, so now they won't have it until they hold their head up. Once they start to hold their head up, SEM starts to work significantly, putting a lot of force on this part of the skull, and the mastoid process develops, okay? Clinically, not so much anymore, um, but way back sort of at the beginnings, just prior to uh, antibiotics, that kind of stuff, this is a fairly airy bone. There's a lot of space in this, in this mastoid process. And they used to get chronic ear infections that would go into the mastoid process called mastoiditis. And what was scary about an infection in the mastoid is it has a direct link to the brain. So what would happen is a child might have somewhat chronic ear infections that moves into the mastoid to get mastoiditis and because of the lack of antibiotics at the time, that infection would work itself into the brain and likely kill the child back in the day. But for us, it's a very important landmark as massage therapists because, when we remember I talked about, memory, did you guys talk about landmarks, right? In class, how important they are to sort of your starting point for any palpation, mm -hmm. yes? So mastoid takes you a lot of places. The mastoid can take you forward to the C1 transverse process, helps you find um, uh, uh, sternocleidal mastoid to step into scalenes. Wow. When's the last time you got a massage? Right. Yeah. Right. So it's a nice land landmark. Thank you. But it is a place that we start from. But yeah, to, to think about it uh, again, this this is a, a living proof of the fact that um, that bone is alive and, and stress is placed on it. Uh, maybe if they're bad stresses. So there's times where we get overgrowth of bone. Uh, you probably have lots of buddies in the running world that suffer from bone spurs heal, right? Because what happens is the ligaments in the bottom of the foot are tight. They're constantly putting pressure on the bone. The bone reacts by starting to grow out these pointy edges, which are really bad. They cut the tendon, or the ligaments in the foot. There's probably all kinds of inflammation also. So again, just be careful of the styloid process if you want to have a look at the mastoid. Um, maybe maybe we have a bit after class. We'll, we'll try palpating it. Yes? Just from bone spurs, are shin splints replacing? No, shin splints are almost more like a tendonitis. So we see here, this is the styloid process you see here in orange. 
Temporal bone is represented by this whole orange piece here. And as I said, uh, in, these, in these dark models, now that you've seen it, I'll keep passing them around as I speak, you really do get a good look at the, um, at the temporal bone here in terms of it. Uh, the you'll see on the other one where the styloid process was, and unfortunately, at some point, it's been broken off, whether it got dropped or something. Uh, we'll continue with the temporal bones. Oh, that semester process, we're not burned with it. The third process of the temporal bone is called the zygomatic process. And it serves as an attachment site and an articular site. So, we say the temporal bone is here. And you'll see what you know is the cheekbone, yes? Okay. Take this process and ultimately just about divide it about in two-thirds and a third. Okay, so a line right along here. You may even have it on yours. Yes, is there a bit of a line? Yeah, right here. So that line represents two different bones that again meet in, at that point in development. The zygomatic process is the posterior part. So imagine this is the temporal bone, and if I draw a line sort of here, where my finger is, this whole part is the zygomatic process of the temporal bone. So that think of it is, I think of that line of what you think of as cheekbone, sort of this much of it would be part of the temporal bone. It's called the zygomatic process of the temporal bone. Okay. Um, the temporal bone also articulates with the parietal bones, the occipital bone, because the occipital bone comes around the back and underneath, and it meets the temporal bone on the, at the base of the skull, the sphenoid bone, and the zygomatic bones. The thing to remember is that, so this process here is the zygomatic process of the temporal bone. The front part that represents the front part of the cheek is part of the zygomatic bone, and it is called the temporal process of the zygomatic bone. So I say, the zygomatic process of the temporal bone articulates with the temporal process of the zygomatic bone to form what you think of as the bony cheek, representing the whole cheek here. A couple things this does. One is it clears part of the, part of the mandible. You can see some disappearing underneath here when we open and close them out. And just provide some facial comfort. So here we are. This is the temporal bone in orange. This is the zygomatic process of the temporal bone in orange, and this is the temporal process of the zygomatic bone in green. <coughs> I hate sneezing when I got the mic on. I apologize. Sorry, Karen. I think falling asleep almost when listening to this. <laughs> the sphenoid bone. We'll finish with this and then we'll take a break. Okay? Okay, as I said, it is a butterfly. And it's a big bone, and it articulates with all eight of these. Okay? So it, because it fills in uh, inside, you can see it the best. So the best way to see the sphenoid is inside. And just think of that butterfly configuration that you see here. That represents, that whole butterfly that you see inside represents the sphenoid bone. Okay? And it does have, uh, you, can, you can touch the sphenoid bone on either side laterally because a, bit, a small part of it does come out to the lateral aspects of the skull that we see right here. We also see it from the uh, inferior view. The purple here also represents it. So you can see zygomatic bone and the palatine bones and so on and so forth. It articulates with a lot of bones. So it has a body and a greater and lesser wing. So when, again, when they dissected 
uh, cadavers many, many years ago, they thought it kind of looked like a bit of a butterfly too. That's why they called it wings. The lesser wings are anterior and the greater wing is just posterior to the lesser wing. Okay, so the lesser wings are to the front, the greater wings are to the back. So you'll see a much smaller set of wings anteriorly as compared to posteriorly. The body lies between the wings, okay? And the superior surface is shaped like a saddle. Now, I don't know what it's like in yours, but does yours look like this? Is yours fairly? Yeah, it's pretty good, okay. So it actually looks like what they would have used way a long time ago. Someone felt it looked like a Turkish saddle that uh, the Turkish warriors would ride in the battle or whatever. Hence the name, the Sella Tursica. And it basically is a direct translation to a Turkish saddle. That's exactly what it means. Okay? So, we've got this unit. Now, the, this Sella Tursica forms something called the hypophyseal fossa. So you can see that there's kind of a space, right? You can almost stick your finger in it. What sits in there is your pituitary gland. That's where your pituitary gland sits. Is right in that fossa. What's really cool is a bit of a sidebar. Um, if you have uh, like tumors growing in the pituitary glands, you know, like giantism, like Andre the Giant actually had pituitarism from a tumor, and they need to take it out, they dislocate your jaw, and they drill up through the roof of your jaw to go into this saddle to get out of the pituitary gland. They can't go through the top of the head, it's too deep, so they actually go through the roof of the mouth to get to the, to where this is. Kind of a neat surgery. I think it's watched online, it's pretty cool. The posterior aspect of this fossa, so the, so the cella tersica forms the hypophyseal fossa which contains a pituitary gland, and the posterior aspect of that fossa is bordered by something called the dorsum cellae. Dorsum means back of the saddle, right? This is exactly what the direct relationship, direct uh, interpretation is, but the back of the saddle. And projecting superiorly from the fossa are the anterior and posterior clinoid processes. Now again, I don't know how they are in yours, but in this model, we have two anterior and two posterior clinoid processes. Are they in yours as well? Yeah. Posterior, they'd be maybe a little pointier. See how they're a little more pointy in mine? Yeah. That's all good. So they'd kind of be there. You see maybe why you want to bring the coloring stuff with you and color them in while I talk or do it. But you'll see that they're here. So we have the, post, the, the anterior here and then the posterior behind. So think of it this way, what's kind of cool, the pituitary gland looks like two grapes kind of hanging on a stalk. So it sits in the fossa, and then the two clinoid processes just come up and just kind of cover at the top. So for some reason, if you think about it from an evolutionary point of view, the body development thinks this is a pretty important organ to keep it nicely surrounded by lots of bone, right? In fact, it is a relatively um, important part of the brain because your um, um, your ability to sexually mature uh, and the release of the hormones to change you from, you know, a child to an adult all arise in this area, all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a fairly important uh, part of the brain. And the floor of the cellulitis is the roof of the paranasal sinuses. So I said it, it will go up to the roof of the mouth to get to it if they need to. So you can see there's a whole bunch of parts of it here. It's got holes in it which allow, uh, so the foramen ovale, the foramen rotundum, and the foramen spinosum. We'll get back to those later. The optical canal runs here. So that's where the optic nerve actually runs because I don't know if you guys know, you see in the front through your eyes, but you actually interpret what you see in the back. 
So the part of your brain that interprets sight is actually back in the occipital area. So nothing here is kind of much. We see it there in yellow in the diagram, and we see it here kind of yellow in, in the uh, floor of the skull where it sits with the superior view. Uh, let's do the occipital bone and we'll do the facial bones after break. How's that? This is the last one. So the occipital bone forms most of the base of, of the skull, okay? And it's the posterior aspect. So if you took my hand, like so, you can see the lambdoid suture here. This represents the occipital bone. So I take my hand and go like this. That's covering the entire occipital bone. All right, so it actually runs very deeply underneath to form the majority of the base. There is a very large hole here. This is known as the foramen magnum. Basically directed means the big friggin' hole. Right? What do you think goes through here? Yeah, actually, spinal cord's a little bit lower. This is where we find the medulla oblongata, the pons. Right? That, that actually comes down just a bit. So part of your midbrain, so some of this neurological material actually, everybody thinks it's way up here in the brain, but it's actually a little bit, just kind of sneaks out under here, and then the spinal cord starts. So, yeah, inferiorly is a large hole called the foramen magnum, where the medulla oblongata exists, and the cranium, can, and it continues as a spinal cord. On the inferior surface are two articular processes, the occipital condyles to articulate with C1. So you look here on the base, you have two condyles right here. And this is where C1 and the skull articulate at the atlantal occipital joint. So your ability to say yes occurs at this joint. Okay. On the median plane, just superior to the frame and magnum, is a knob-like projection called the external occipital protuberance. Have you done that in your class yet for <coughs> palpations? All right, so it's this bump right here. All right, so all of you feel to the midline. Some of you might have a V that just kind of ends with nothing, and some of you might have a big bump there. How many people have a big bump there? Yes, yeah, some people have a big bump. Okay. This is the attachment for a very, very large ligament called the nuchal ligament. Okay, so it again is a major landmark that we use in massage therapy to palpate other structures. Right, so you, you, again, you're going to start working on this next week. You'll hear students talk about it because we always try to do short form and everything. They'll talk about the EOP. All right, but that's what it is. At the point of this protuberance is what's called the inion. So the two lines come together to form the EOP, and, on, and then if you've got a big knobby EOP, then on the top of that kind of bump is called the inion. Uh, the superior nuchal line, uh, the superior limit of the neck, extends laterally on each side from the protuberance. So we see here, here is the external occipital protuberance here. So we've turned this upside down, so it's kind of looking like this, yes? Okay, so you see it here. Here are your, uh, your, your lines. So we said that. Uh, the superior nuchal line is the limit of the neck, extends laterally on each side from the protuberance. A significant number of muscles find attachment to the superior nuchal line. And then inferior to the superior nuchal line is the inferior nuchal line, which is where we find even more muscles attached. This is your bread and butter, because what do people come to you for? 
headaches, sore necks, stiff necks, yes? You need to know this area quite well. I spend a lot of time in this area. So, here is the superior nucleoline and the inferior nucleoline. The superior nucleoline, we actually find, trapezius actually attaches here, okay? Upper trapezius. We find splenius capitis, sternomastoid, occipitalis, blah, blah, blah. There's lots of muscles here. So, I'm, you know, when, you're, when we get to this part, I probably come back them a little bit. There might be a little bit of formal teaching I do. There's some important muscles I think that are difficult to understand that I'll likely do in class on top of my screencasts. But ultimately, there's a lot of stuff here. So, you know, in most cases, a lot of times your massage therapist has your head like this, right? My fingers are working in here, and you're like, oh my God, what are you doing to me? Or, oh my God, I'm going to start purring, right? So there's, there's a lot of muscle attachment in here. Well, you can see all the blue spots that represent suboccipital muscles that we all find here. I work in here a lot. Um, and I'm sure most massage therapists likely do as well. So this is an area that you really, really get to, need to get to know because it'll, it'll really help you as a therapist. Um, so remember, we've got a superior nuchal line and we have an inferior nuchal line. Sort of extrapolate that out to the muscles I talked about in because I, I do believe uh, the muscles I talked about in the... Uh, uh, no, I didn't really get into these muscles much. So it'll, be the next, it'll be the next set of lectures, uh, the cervical muscles, because most of these muscles originate cervically. So here it is in this purpley color. So there is your uh, external occipital protuberance with the very tip being the inion. There is your superior nucleoline and your inferior nucleoline for your muscle attachments. Here are your occipital condyles that articulate with uh, the first level, the first cervical vertebra, C1. Take a break.